Christian faith has often focused on right beliefs and right choices as the key to personal growth. But biblical evidence and modern brain science show that our character is shaped more by whom we love than merely by what we believe. Dr. Jim Wilder takes us deep into these insights today on the Unhurried Living Podcast. In his book, Renovated, Jim Wilder shows us how we can train our brains to relate to God based on joyful, mutual attachment, leading to emotional and spiritual maturity, as our identity and character are formed by our relationship with God. Dr. Wilder is a neurotheologian, training leaders and counselors for over 30 years on five continents. The founder of Life Model Works, he is an expert on the intersection of theology and brain science. He's also the co-author of Rare Leadership and Living from the Heart Jesus Gave You. Enjoy our conversation with Dr. Wilder. Well, Jim, thank you so much uh, for being with us today. We've, again, heard so much about you from Jane and from Amy, our friends, um, and have looked forward to this conversation with you. I'm really glad to be here and uh, move into that unrushed part of life together where, where God meets us. Yes, we've found that to be true. Well, we thought we would sort of dive into your book here right at the beginning where, where you begin. And you uh, have us uh, at home with Dallas. And we're wondering if you could just share with us uh, some memories of your time with Dallas in his last days and how it sort of led into this book. Well, the interesting thing for me was that Dallas was someone who never stopped learning. Uh, he was always thinking and learning and coming up with some um, observation that had, was a, was a surprise to me. And uh, the the difference with the last days was that he was very clear about his own mortality uh, and what he could take on and what he couldn't. He had some projects that he had been working on about moral knowledge and is very diligent to say I need to get as much done as this on this as I can and at the same time he observed me one day I, I've I've learned more in this last year than in all the rest of my life and I wish I had time to talk about it and mm. so I think he commissioned a bunch of people my I'm hopeful I'm one of them to go on looking into the, some the things he was exploring is very warm about that. He uh, asked me to write up a one page summary of what we were talking about. He said, I'd like to show this to my friends. And so this was the kind of thing he was doing. He was cultivating the things that he thought should grow in the kingdom. And uh, the whole idea of, of uh, salvation uh, as springing out of a new attachment with God was what he and I were talking about. Mm. And he said uh, he never really um, studied any kind of salvation theology that was built around attachment. It was, you know, there's plenty of other historical reasons for it. Salvation is getting us out of a whole lot of trouble. But suppose it's also part of a new life that springs from really connecting with God and, and love. 
And, uh, and, and that was what God really wanted to do was restore creation uh, through this new attachment. And he wanted me to look into that. That's kind of how the book grew. Uh, he had originally ar uh, arranged sort of a proposal for us to spend a year working on it. And then we had to lay that aside because his health didn't allow it. Yeah. And so my yeah. sadness is I never got to hear what he would have said about it when I was, when I was done. So I bet, that would have been said, a, a, I bet that would have been a really fruitful interaction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, we wrote this book and half of it is his words and half of it is mine, except if you get to the last chapter, which originally would have been us talking about it together. And now it's just me. And, you know, what would he have said? I'm sure it's something I wouldn't have expected. <laughs> Probably. He, he had a way of surprising us with his way of saying it, his, his vantage point on something. He always pressed you to think. Mm, that's for sure. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I really enjoyed the format of, you know, one of Dallas's talks from that day of teaching that you all had uh, him do, and then you interacting with that. And, and it really is conversational in the way the book comes together. And, and as I was reading, I remember one of the things that impressed me, one of the things Dallas would often say is that, you know, you don't become spiritually or emotionally mature by willpower. Of course, he had some things to say about, you know, the will. But can you unpack that a little more, kind of what he meant by that and how you then interacted with that inside of his? Right. Well, you know, there's always this caution of uh, <clears throat> trying to explain what Dallas meant by something. <laughs> <clears throat> um, so I'll try to approach this humbly. But yeah. philosophy has a very long um, history with the will going way back to the uh, Greek philosophers. Um, they divided the human being into various uh, elements, you know, and so there's the will as part of it, the memory, uh, there's emotions and things like that. So when Dow speaks of the will, he's uh, on a very, very old, very complex, very well-developed, um, both philosophical and theological, conversation. Thomas Aquinas put a lot of books into discussing these sorts of things. And and Dallas, when he was talking about the will, was probably using the classic view. The will in the classic view is probably very close to what we currently mean by identity. The the totality or the or the the main, you know, what I intend as a human being. So when he talked about the vision, intention and means, intention and will overlapped very strongly. Now, the Greek philosophers were working on that really quite diligently, but then you have to match that somehow with, with Christian texts. And in Christian texts, you have the heart, soul, and mind um, as the elements. So now you try to combine which one of these would be what the philosophers mean by the will. Hmm. And, uh, and it never matched real well. Yeah, I think we'll probably get back to talking about that a little bit more later. But, you know, we're we're trying to make philosophy match with what God's telling us. And um, philosophy has kind of a fragmented view of human beings. And God probably has a much more uh, unified view of human beings. And so they, they don't always go together that well. Now, willpower is a very, very new idea. Mm. And willpower uh, actually has uh, very little respect in philosophical circles. So 
of the things that Dallas is always doing when he's talking is he's got a philosopher from his university in the background listening to him. And he wants to say, now, we're talking about the will, but I don't want you to mistake this with the modern notion of willpower, which is just the things that I, I choose and I try to force myself to do. You know, mm-hmm. that's a long ways from identity. I mean, there's an overlap, right? Yeah. But trying to make your, force yourself to do things is not what um, Dallas means by intention. And I, and I think that's where we have to start. You know, he means a lot more. Uh, and the modern audience uh, that listens to him, here's a very small thing like, oh, I'm supposed to do this by, by trying hard. Right. And Dallas says, oh, ha, ha, baby, give it up now. Trying hard is not going to get you there. Uh, we're meaning something much more holistic than that. Yeah. Oh, that's really helpful. Yeah. Well, um, moving from will and willpower, um, one of the big things here is attachment, of course. And so um, we're wondering if you could describe for us what is loving attachment and why is it important in our emotional, relational, and spiritual development? Yes, well, this is where it gets interesting to me as a neurotheologian because I'm always looking for this overlap between science and what uh, how God designed the human mind with what he's uh, going on in scripture. And so you start looking at um, the study that began actually in the, in the, with animal studies and why is it that little ducks follow their mother? And why is it that um, so much of the animal kingdom is learned by imitation and at the basis of the brain, then there's this system that says, when I'm born, I'm looking for a bigger form of me. <laughs> and whatever that is, I'm going to connect to it because if I don't, I'm going to die. And that's basically attachment system is a thing that looks for what will give me life that I must be connected with. And if I don't connect, I will die. Mm. And then I'm going to follow that, whatever it is, and become a bigger form of me. Well, um, you know, ducks and, and, and such things have a, have a very simple system, simple if you <laughs> compare it to the human, but not simple if you think about just all the things a duck learns from following, you know, the big duck. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, of course, uh, some human researchers made themselves into the big duck and the little baby ducks followed them and it, it was all very cute. Uh, but then <laughs> you may even remember that some geese were imprinted yes. that way. And then the, the, the big goose had to learn how to fly to teach them to migrate. And so it got some a little ultralight and the little geese oh, are I remember flying, that you know. Yeah. Well, the problem with human beings is we're prone to attach to the wrong big goose. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Or all the ones that we have to attach to that are actually human are defective. They're not actually what God meant human beings to be, but we duplicate whatever we're attached to. Mm. Now, this is the strongest mechanism in the brain. Mm. And I uh, have come to the conclusion that God meant it originally to have us attached to the big humans who are then teach us how to attach to the God who, in whose image we are made. Mm. But that, that, Handoff that linkage has broken down, and so now we're just um, you might say copying a lot of lame geese. But mm. the uh, 
the mechanism is the strongest mechanism in the brain that actually forms our identity. Now, suppose God actually meant that to form identities with uh, other humans, but also with him. If we recaptured that mechanism, that attachment mechanism that ultimately becomes more powerful than our desire for life itself. Mm. You know, attachment will make parents run into a burning building with almost zero chance of survival because their child is in there. It's stronger than our urge to live. Mm. Um, and uh, I think God wants to be involved in those parts of our mind that are stronger than our urge to maintain life uh, itself. In fact, I think someone said something like, those who try to gain their life will lose it, and those who are willing to have an attachment to me that's stronger than life itself will actually gain life. And, and in which case, the only mechanism in the brain that will do that is your attachment mechanism. Hmm. Wow. Uh, you know, maybe it needs to become Christian. Yeah. That's yeah. <laughs> so powerful. And I mean, a, a magnificent invitation then. Well, and so then I think as I read the book and as I heard you unpack that dynamic, especially in light of what does it mean to be in relationship with God? What is what's the nature of that relationship? And so we've used that language forever. I remember being invited in a big stadium to come forward and to pray a prayer and to enter into a relationship, but it largely felt like a relationship I was talking about and thinking things about and talking with other people about, and not always originally anyway, experiencing, which when I hear you describe this attachment reality, that sounds like the dynamic or the mechanism that would have enabled me to enter into what I was being invited to. Well, that becomes the, the really hard part of explaining this. I mean, if we look at uh, Jesus' words that I came to, uh, that you might have joy and have it as full as possible, and you realize that joy for the brain is, I'm glad to be with you. It's not an emotion. It's a mm. connectedness. It's like when I look at you, I go, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Uh -huh. uh, that connection, and if God meant for us to have that, and that's the basis of building a good attachment, you see, uh, we go, oh, it's you. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. Life is going to happen now. If, if that's what Jesus is aiming at, and, and that idea would always bring Dallas to tears. Mm. Um, if that's what he's aiming at, it makes a lot of sense of things that we've tried to figure out from the word side. Uh, you know, what do these words mean? But if we look at them as relationship, then the words are faint colors for the the, the gorgeous uh, tones that come from, from relationship. I, I, I know for two years I tried to explain joy to people. And it was like when I get done with my lectures, they go, I still don't get this joy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> then I took PowerPoint and I started showing pictures of mothers with their babies. Never had another question. Isn't oh. that perfect? Oh, that makes so much sense. That's really helpful because you can feel that in your in your guts. You can feel what that what it is when you've experienced it. You can also feel what it's like when maybe you've missed it. Um, oh, yeah. But it really comes home. And it, and it makes me think, too, I was really helped by your explanation of what, what uh, my understanding is, you know, fast track and slow track, you know, modes in the in the way we engage. I, I think that would really help our listeners to understand kind of that uh, those mechanisms within us. 
there's one thing that really can demystify stuff uh, in a hurry is, is understanding that the, the brain has multiple processors and one of them is much, much faster than the others, or at least significantly enough faster. And it's the one that figures out who am I right now? Uh. Now, we are, have a slower processor, which is conscious thought, runs about five cycles per second. And so um, every time we, we get conscious, we've already figured out who am I right now? Because it ran faster. And so we assume we always know who we are. But in actual fact, it has to be figured out over and over, six times a second. That's the fast track. And it is trying to figure out in the in this current context, who am I and what would it be like me and my people to do? Mm. Um, as Westerners, we don't think much about my people. But if you think about the brain imitating somebody, it's always looking at, well, in this, right in this setup, who am I going to imitate? What have, who have I seen handle something like this before? Mm. And most of life is kind of routine and repetitive. So, you know, when it comes to most things, we pretty much have an idea. But throughout life, we're always encountering something we haven't run into before. Mm -hmm. And now the question is, what do my people do now? And we kind of know that feeling inside like, oh, well, what am I supposed to do here? Right? Right. Now, this fast track in the brain is actually based on attachment. We don't let just anybody be our example. So it has to be our people or we don't absorb it. And, and if you ever went to a different culture in a different country you've never been exposed to, and you realize these people are all working together, but I have no idea how that works. And, yeah. and I don't know how to do what they do. Yeah. Um, but I sure feel out of place. Yes. You know, yes. Now you're running sort of a day and night sense of what it's like to have no people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but the fast track has incorporated all our experiences up to this. And then when it has figured out what it's like me and my people to do, it identifies uh, a selection of least harmful responses. That's actually what it's trying to do. What is the least harmful thing to do here of the things I've seen done? Now you can figure out how to implement that. It goes to conscious thought, like here's your options. And what is what do you want to do with them hmm. at a conscious level? These are now what we usually think of as choice or hmm. will or things like that. Now that the, we've all known that something's getting figured out before we get our choices, and uh, Freud talked about this as being the either the pre-conscious or the unconscious, and there's all that language. But it's actually well, both you can describe things that way. What we're talking about is sort of like super conscious. It's like before I become conscious, I have been figuring out who I want to be based on my examples. And now that's the side of our, our life that gives us the, those Im immediate reactions to things. Yeah. Right? We call character or, you know, my, my gut reaction. And, and then... Our conscious mind often says, you know, uh, those, we don't know there was examples that we had absorbed, but haven't we all said, I'm not going to be like my dad or my mom. I'm never going to do or say that. And, sure. and then suddenly it come popping out of our like 
reaction. Like, where did that come from? <laughs> I just heard my dad come right out of my mouth. Yes. Yep. And Dallas calls the other side of it where we put most of our Christian thoughts as, as sort of sin management. Now that I have this basic response that I absorbed of being like every other human I didn't want to be like, now I've got to manage that so it doesn't cause the damage, uh, you know. And, and it's, by the way, good idea to manage it as compared to letting it run loose, right? Right. Uh, I don't, don't want to get the idea that we don't want to at least manage it. That would be the least we could do. But somehow we want our Christian life to get into the character. So my, my initial response will be what God actually intended. Uh, and to do that, we have to make Jesus uh, and God the Father our people. Mm. Yeah, yes. that's a great way. Somehow, somehow we have to love and attach with them. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Oh, and then suddenly, you know, so much of the language of Jesus talking about his father and about he and the father were one and the mutual love that they shared and how that he so wanted us to know the father and to, you know, to find a connection to the father. I mean, all that language now gives us a rich biblical soil in which, you know, what you're talking about just finds itself so much at, at home. Yeah. And in our tradition too, we often talk about the Trinity and the Trinitarian reality and how we are invited into that. So what you're saying just makes all of this seem even more inviting and necessary mm-hmm. in a, in a real, real way. So, um, well, so in light of what we've said so far, we're, let's be honest, we are just barely skimming the surface of the depths that is, that is in your book. So we're encouraging everyone before yeah. and after this conversation to, to purchase the book and read and really soak in. But we wanted to highlight some of the, just some of the ideas that you're touching here. So, so far, oh, there the it shameless is. Shameless advertisement. There, <laughs> yeah. So the book is titled Renovated. Yeah, the book is titled Renovated, God, Dallas Willard, and the Church that Transforms. Yeah. And it really is a beautiful continuation of a lot of good things Dallas yeah. said. And I think you've given some really helpful clarifications of some things that enriches it even further. Yeah. And if you're in our membership community, Jim just held up the book to show the cover. That's why we were laughing. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, you'll see the video if you're in the community. So but in light of the things that we've just barely touched so far, um, what can you say to us about emotional and spiritual maturity? There's some great ideas about those two and how they go together or don't. <laughs> yeah, well, that actually is what started the dialogue between uh, Dallas and myself. Um, because there was a, a general idea in, in the spiritual, the spiritual development, the spiritual uh, uh, growth community that uh, of spiritual maturity as being sort of separate from human maturity. It was, it was, you know, it was a, a something else. And when I would ask people, you know, what, what is spiritual maturity? They would still have a hard time defining it, but they usually said, well, you know, it's people who, who pray uh, read their Bible at church, uh, attend church rate. I mean, the things you learned in Sunday school. Right. Uh, but they were all essentially activities we do. But at some point, everybody kind of realized, you know, doing a lot of these activities has produced some fairly obnoxious people, um, you know, that, that do that. And it's just they're doing it right. But I somehow just they don't feel so Jesus-like, you know. So the, the whole idea of how, what do you put it together? Meanwhile, the psychology group uh, way back in those days, they're sitting around in hot tubs and getting in touch with their feelings and all that. <laughs> 
And it's like, you know, something about that just doesn't feel quite like what I think humans should be like either. So being all feely and touchy and, and, and all that stuff that, that can't be right. Um, and then we have people doing parenting, trying to grow up kids uh, some way or another, and they're looking for a model of that. And, and so the question, but are those separate or are those the same? And uh, basically, um, the conclusion was that human maturity was something that God entrusted to human beings. It's capable. We're capable of understanding if we're teaching our kids how to be potty trained and how to do, you know, sit at the table and how to wait a little bit till you eat your food and, and how to look out for other people and take care of your sister. And, you know, human maturity is something we can understand and we're responsible for it. God didn't give us that, uh, you know, so that we could just lay our babies out on a rock and say, feed yourself. No, they have to learn how to be human. But we also have to realize that the best models that we have for human are incomplete. So spiritual maturity is actually all of emotional, relational maturity. How do you take care of uh, other humans as well as any other human could do it? After all, doesn't Jesus say that uh, even the pagans love their neighbors? That's right. Yeah. So that loving your neighbor as yourself is basically getting you up to the pagan level of maturity. We're responsible to do that. We should learn how to do that as well as any pagan can do it. But then is there more? Would would the character of God still be showing through? And no, character of God extends love beyond the people that like you to the people who aren't so fond of you and don't want to see you right now. And and that level of maturity, of, of caring for others, of forming attachments to uh, people who don't deserve it, mm. which is basically what God does, right? That's right. Yeah. That should begin to grow above the level of human maturity. So spiritual maturity is sort of normal human maturity plus. But the problem is that we have tried to just go after the spiritual stuff without growing the human stuff. Like we can ignore our human relational maturity and just go on to be spiritual. And I think both Dallas and I came to the point of saying, no, 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 no. We really... You can't neglect the one to be, become spiritual. You actually have to grow a better than normal human maturity by letting God make you more than you ever imagined you could be. Um, and that's what spiritual maturity comes to be. It's, it's the completion of what God meant humans to be, uh, not an alternative. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you want to say something like that? Uh, that's really helpful. You know, um, I think some good things are being said about, you know, emotionally health, emotionally healthy. Pete Scazzaro has said right. some good things, of mm-hmm. course. But uh, I really appreciate that vision because I, I remember having a conversation as a young pastor on a large church staff. And the question came up, what is maturity? And essentially, after an hour's conversation, the conclusion was, we don't know which was a horrible answer to hear from the leaders of a large community. And, uh, and, and, but as I've read what you wrote, and as I think about some of these insights, I think certainly somehow it would look like Jesus. It would look like his beautiful expression of what a human life might look like in relation to his father, in relation to people, in his own way of living and, and the character of his life. Um, I would love to hear you talk some uh, about you. You talk about the idea of volunteerism, which I understand to sort of be our 
really common Western, maybe especially North American focus on making choices and making decisions and making resolutions even maybe, uh, and, and how that compares to really what you're talking about in terms of attachment as the base for growth and, 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 and maturing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, yeah, the whole um, modern situation, you might say, came out of the Enlightenment, uh, which started with uh, this wonderful idea from Descartes, uh, I, I think, therefore I am. And, and so that made uh, thinking or truth or ideas the most, the most defining element of human beings. Well, I think the church rose to that occasion and said, well, if you want to talk about truth, we have got truth for you right here. Hmm. But the, the problem is always when we, when we respond to culture and, and we try to talk about what they find to be important, that we have a tendency to make that the most important thing, well, which it is at the moment at our dialogue, it's a point of connection. So we said, oh, well, that's very good. We've got truth. Uh, and so theology became about being the person who had the best truth. Mm. And we've still are splitting denominations and peoples and groups over, you know, I've got this versus that, you know, and this detail here makes me more closely tied to truth. So I can't really be connected with you. So now we begin to see the, that the, the formation of a, of a group, a loving group has become less important than being the one who's the most, got the most truth, you know. Right. Well, the culture very quickly drifted on and, and into voluntarism. So what's the point in having truth if you can't use it? So uh, truth only is important if you make choices based on it. So the will or choice became the, the defining point. And so now we're talking about, well, it's all very good if you have the truth, but what kind of choices are you making? Mm -hmm. And so culture banked on that for a while. And, and actually, um, at this point, the Protestant Reformation uh, is developing along. And um, the uh, particularly the reform movement began to have an element that said, uh, oh, well, salvation is actually about choice. And so it's a choice to follow Jesus, choice to accept Jesus into your life. There's all of these choice built ideas. And that became, uh, again, very, uh, very formative during the American uh, spiritual enlightenment period, began to make very focused attention on, we have to make, uh, get people to choose quickly to follow Jesus. You know, what if you go home tonight and you die on the way home and you mm -hmm. haven't made this choice yet? And so they, they had the warrior's bench that they set up to help people quickly make decisions. And so then becoming a Christian became a decision. It had never been that before, but now it was. Oh, wow. And so in a stadium, like you mentioned, you could, you could do this kind of thing. But now um, the problem became that there's a lot of things that don't really resolve very quickly if you make a better choice. And one of the first ones we had to face was the area of addictions, alcoholism. So they began to push back from that side of Christianity, saying, hey, you know, there's some things you just can't choose your way out of. I mean, you make choices, great, but that, there's more to it than that. Yeah. So 
uh, the next movement for culture was, well, it isn't about choice, it's about the power, the will to power became the discussion. And Nietzsche and, and the Nazis and a variety of other people said, well, it doesn't matter what you what you chose if you don't have the power to make it happen. So it's all about power. And then Christianity followed by with Christianity, the power of the charismatic renewal and the power of God became the thing. And and now the thing that uh, uh, you know Christians say was that was powerful. Uh, and so um, you know now we're beginning to blend all of these things into. Uh, but when it got to personal life, you talk about sexual orientation, you talk about marriage and divorce and all those things. You found that people with the right truth, trying to make the right choices and, and operating in the power of the Holy Spirit were still having some trouble. And culture then began to move in the direction of tolerance. Well, you know, we're just going to have to put up with it. But the, the, the problem you see is all those mechanisms have ignored what makes change most profoundly in the human being, and that's who we love. So suppose now it's actually our loves more than what we believe and what we choose and what the Holy Spirit empowers that might be what would change our character. Uh, should we examine that a little bit? And that's where attachment brings us back. So it's, it isn't, you know, really across Christianity in the West, uh, you know, at the end of every sermon, they try to make you make some better choices. Yeah, right. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily improve your love with God and with the people around you, especially the ones that feel like enemies. So that's the discussion I think we need to have at this point. I, I really appreciate that. I, I I can remember a moment where someone who, as I reflect on him, he was sort of a mentor presence. Clearly, he had entered into this attachment with the Father through Jesus reality in his life. It It was clear in his way of relating to people. It was clear in his way of talking about what it would be to be in relationship with God. And, you know, language like uh, Jesus in John 15, the language of uh, a vine and a branch, it's really an attachment that's happening there. And that became really meaningful to me. But your way of sort of giving some both scientific and theological uh, foundationing to it has really uh, has really been helpful as I've read the book and as I'm listening to you, you know, describe that. Yeah, I think I want to repeat um, mm. one of the sentences you just said to make sure we got this. You said, who we love changes our character, not what we believe. Did I get that right? Yeah, that's basically how the brain's configured. Mm. That, that's a, I mean, that's a jaw dropper and an eye opener for a lot of us. It's who, a big idea it, yes. to think well about, but to live into and to find, find it to be. And, and then your language about identity and character. What if that really was our identity? We experienced that as our identity instead of the identity being something I had to prove by how hard I work or identity was something I had to prove by how much goodies I collected or how many people I impressed, like my identity was somewhere else, instead of really just simply rooted in this attachment with God that I've been invited into. And we find that throughout the history of the church, that, uh, you know, we find St. John talking about love and attachment uh, rather strongly. A thousand years later, it's St. Clair, uh, who's talking about it's the love of God. And then about the same time as the Enlightenment was starting, we have St. Teresa 
down in Avila, and, and she's talking about we need to love and experience the presence of God. And when we do that, we'll find that we're very different than we thought we were. Mm. Uh, only if you try to do that without the community around you and practicing it with them, you'll never really come to this understanding of God. And so the, these elements have been present. And, and uh, it's the language we use to try to make them understandable yeah. that sometimes makes a bridge and sometimes it also makes it harder. So the neuro neurology language now is giving us a chance to look at things Christians have been talking about uh, for a long time and say, oh, yeah, there's some things we haven't explained very well. And, our, our, you know, we do want truth. Oh, yes, we do, because being wrong is not very helpful. <laughs> yeah, but, um, you know, is there something that, um, and, and N.T. Wright recently talked about, uh, I think it was an article he published in February that said, uh, there's some things that we can only know through love. And mm -hmm. So the, the knowing that comes through loving is different than the knowing that comes through thinking ideas. That is uh, and, and there's another way of talking about the same dynamic. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man, there's so much here. Well, we would not be unhurried living if we didn't ask one question about quieting. You talked, mm. about, you talked about quieting. Why is quieting important in this? We, we heard you say that community is essential and also quieting is important. Um, can you talk about that for just a bit? Sure, and I hope you let me make one more comment about the community as well. Oh, please. yes, please do. Yes. Okay. Uh, shall I do that first? Yeah, sure. To quiet? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, at uh, about age 13, which we call puberty, the brain goes through a major uh, change inside in which the survival of my people becomes more important than my own survival. Hmm. Up until then, your brain is designed to help you survive and grow a growing self. But our group identity becomes more important to the brain uh, than my individual identity from age 12 on. And so we really have to do some updating because uh, so much of our thoughts of, of maturity and identity are individualized. But we actually are a lot more a people from age 12 on than we are an individual. And in the West, we don't know how to think about that very much. Uh, so um, now to go back to our people, there's two things that our people have to provide from us. Uh, and one is joy. Are they glad to be with us? Mm. Uh, and the second is, are they restful? Are they a place where I can rest and be safe? Yeah. And so how do we know if we can rest? Well, the people that we trust are the ones that will let us quiet. Um, mm. As Ezekiel said, the, um, um, Bad shepherds drive even the strong sheep with ruthless severity, but the good shepherds take them out to play mm. and rest. And so we have this thing that we will trust the people that know when we've had enough and let us rest. This ability to quiet yourself, as Dell and Shore has said, is the strongest predictor of mental health across a lifespan. Mm. So if you want to know who will bring you joy, and who you can trust, the joy will be a high energy state. It's like, wow. And now whew, I can catch my breath. So we look at God and you know how he starts the day? When the sun goes down. 
Yes. Yes. That's the start of the day for God. And he says, now for the first half of the day, I'm going to have you rest. I'm going to go ahead and work. And then halfway through the day, you can wake up and spend the rest of the day with me. And a lot of us try to start our day with God, but we use the Western idea of starting the day with God. It's when that's halfway done. Let's find out what God did time, not starting the day. (laughs) Starting the day is when we quiet with God, we rest together and go like, you know, I feel so secure with you. You're so my, my people. You're so, so trustworthy that I can just go to sleep and spend the first half of this day in quietness and rest and then trust is my strength. And then I'll wake up and we'll see what, what you've been doing. And I'm going to join into that. Uh, and here's the thing. When I was two, we came to the States because uh, my parents were missionaries in South America. And I saw snow for the first time. And my dad was shoveling the sidewalk. And so I had a little shovel and I was shoveling snow too. And I was shoveling it onto the sidewalk. And dad turned around and he saw me shoveling the snow that he had just shoveled off the second pack. Jimmy, what are you doing? I said, I am helping you, daddy. Right. To this day, he smiles about that. And I wonder how many times we are helping you, daddy, by shoveling snow (laughs) that he cleared overnight back where it wasn't supposed to be. Yes. It's a it's a painful but um, a realistic metaphor, I think, for some of the things I, I've sometimes said. It. I wonder if how much I'm doing that God has to somehow undo, instead of learning how to cooperate with what God's doing. I I I love the image that you know in the Jewish way of thinking, the day begins as the sun goes down, and that my day begins with rest and not with work, mm-hmm. and that's where I remember who I am. And then I enter into my day and I do what I do with God. And, and the language of attachment and connection is really helpful there. Yeah. Well, we, um, in the opening, before we start our conversation, of course, we've told everybody about your book and a little bit more about you, but we'd love for you to sort of repeat that. Are there ways we can connect with you online? Um, how can we get your book? Are you on social media? You know, all the places, how can we find you? <laughs> yes. Well, uh, I actually am a group identity. Uh, (laughs) One of the things that I have fought from the beginning is there should be no Jim Wilder website. Okay. Uh, There should be no, you know, uh, I don't have a Twitter account. I don't have a a social. There's Life Model Works. There's actually about 30 people that got together. Uh, Dallas was one of our consultants. uh, Jane was one of the participants who created this model of what should life look like. I get to explain it to people more than most, and I'm maybe the chief theoretician and that I think about the theory. But Life Model Works is where you would go to look for the stuff that I'm creating. Almost everything I write, I co-author with someone else. Wonderful. It's harder to do, uh, but it leaves uh, someone else who is working on that area after I move on to another subject, and it also enriches what I'm learning from everybody. So if, if I would encourage people look up uh, something around life model works. Uh, That should give you links to things. uh, You know, the uh, standard online stores have my books and things like that, but wonderful. Don't come looking for me. Come looking for a community that's working on how should we should live together (laughs) and then contribute to that. That's, oh, that's great. Beautiful. We appreciate that. Yeah, very we will much. point we love every- that spirit. Yeah. We'll point everyone to life model works then. Well, Perfect. thank you so much again. We, I'll say it again. We have just 
barely scratch the surface. the surface. So we're hoping that we that we encourage people to go buy your book and to really dive in to the work that you're doing. So thank you again for being with us. It's been delightful. Dr. Jim Wilder and NavPress have graciously offered the first chapter of Renovated for you, our podcast listeners. You can gain access to this bonus resource on our website at unhurriedliving.com slash podcast bonus. You'll be granted access to an online resource page that lets you download all of our past bonuses, and it will update with the new bonuses as they become available in upcoming podcasts. So again, go to unhurriedliving.com slash podcast bonus. Also, if you'd like early access to extended video recordings of these podcast interviews, you can get that by joining our Unhurried community. We continued our conversation after this podcast, and we dove into more questions on today's theme. You can learn more about this at unhurriedliving.com slash community, and it's only $10 a month. You also get a monthly training video personally from Alan. So if you want to see the videos of these podcasts with extra stuff and you want to hear Alan, head on over to unhurriedliving.com slash community. And remember, as always, we love connecting with more and more friends like you who want to rest deeper, live fuller, and lead better.